Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of the Coral Project's No Baton Needed podcast. I'm Chris Wilmore, the No Baton Needed podcast's executive audio engineer and sometimes co-host. This episode completes the composer trilogy of the first season, specifically composers who have written commissioned pieces for the Coral Project, or in the case of this episode's subject, a composer slated to write a work for us that we hope to perform when we can perform together at a future concert in person. We hope you enjoy the conversation between the Choral Project's artistic director and founder, Daniel Hughes, and conductor, composer, soprano, and educator, Dr. Kira Zeman-Rugan. Well, hello, Kira. It's Hi, Daniel. exciting to finally have a chance to sit and pick your brain about music and composition. As you know, the Choral Project has been doing a series with um, composers, and it this will be... a a fun opportunity to interface with you in this too, because not only um, are you a composer, but you're also a conductor. So we would ask you some questions about the choral craft in general. Um, so we'll just jump right in. Um, okay. In the, in your world of music making, is there an one aspect of your musicianship that you enjoy the most? These days it's composition. It used to be conducting. I mean, right now nobody's really conducting, not right. in the traditional sense. <laughs> But even before that, um, there's something very meditative about composing, where I just kind of sit in my own little world and allow the muse to come on by and and take me on a ride. <laughs> the muse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you? It, what is what does your process typically look like when that happens? You know, I really find that I kind of end up outside myself. Um, sometimes I say to my friends because they'll ask me, and I'll say, I I don't know where that came from. I was just following where it took me that day, you know, and so, and sometimes it's harder than others. Sometimes I'll go, I have no idea what I'm doing and I have to hash it out. But the ones that tend to be my favorite are the ones that just is like, it was almost like a download. There it is. Mm. <laughs> Those are my favorite. Does it, does this process change for you depending on whether or not you are writing an instrumental piece of music versus writing music set to a text? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, prior to COVID quarantine, I was doing primarily uh, choral music set to text, very inspired by the text. Um, after COVID, I've, I kind of have gone through my own little metamorphosis where I just feel. I just have so much that I feel for the world and for family members and for friends that are going through so much challenge right now um, that uh, I have found that... I like to just put on my headphones and I, I usually use a, a digital piano so that I can just kind of be inside myself. I close my eyes, I turn out the lights and I just play. And oh. that's actually my favorite way now because some really interesting things have come from that. Just close my eyes and just play and see what shows up. It's like Bruckner. Anton Bruckner would have these moments at the organ where he would go into these huge trances, trances while playing and just come up with like 10 minutes long of you know transcendent sort of organ improvisation he used to get in trouble the priest would say can we can we get back to the service a little bit but yeah he'd have these out-of-body experiences he's like no i can't because that's just what came and i just put it down so (laughs) yeah this this is actually a change for me because um you know i've been composing since i was in high school and middle school um and back then i think I, i i did it more um 
academically, I guess you could say, you know, mm-hmm. I have to follow these rules and I go this direction and here's a key change and, you know, here's, here's the form. And, you know, that's how we teach ourselves or are taught to learn how to compose. Um, but over the past year, three, four years, maybe even, uh, I've seen my compositions change and, and I'm starting to find more of what I would consider more true to my voice as opposed to it kind of sounds like so-and-so, you know? Mm. Um, but also just like allowing whatever to come in and just be there and not, not let myself get in the way. I totally understand that. Yes. So let's, I'm going to take a couple of steps back here and ask you, um, back to when you were doing more conducting. So you founded a, a choir called Solis and I wanted to pick your brain, but what was the process for you in terms of creating, creating that chorus? How and why did you create it? Okay. Uh, I was working at my doctorate at um, Arizona State University, and um, I'd had some very successful years working with a men's choir and the School of Contorum, which was a choir of all music majors, um, which was like one of the best years of my life, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, how, how can we, you know, reach that peak again? And um, uh, this choir came from what was called the Early Music Ensemble at the time. And it was basically whoever wanted to join, who, who liked early music. Um, me being me, I was like, well, this thing should be branded. It should have a name. It should have, you know, a, a look and a design. And um, as it turns out, the, the last two years that I was at ASU, this was one of two choirs that I conducted. I also conducted the community chorus, um, choral union. Uh, and when I left, ASU wasn't in a place where they really wanted to keep it. And we started getting gigs where we were paid. And so I kept it. Um, the name comes from, um, originally, uh, the, um, the Sun Devils is the mascot of Arizona State University. Right. Uh, so I was trying to kind of like play with those ideas, you know, Diablo Solis. <laughs> like, well, that really sounds quite evil, you know, <laughs> especially for an organization that's trying to do all this light, gorgeous early music. Uh, and so we ended up with Solis, which just means sun or light. Mm-hmm. very reflective of Arizona. And um, we had Camarata for many, many years, which just like the Florentine Camarata just means a group of friends or comrades that want to come together and make music. Uh, recently, we've taken that part of our name off because most people outside of the music world really don't understand it. But they do understand Solis because it's also, you can find it in Latin, you can find it in, uh, you know, Spanish. So... That's how we got started, and we've just kind of kept rolling ever since. And how long have you been uh, soaring with them? Let's see, we started in 2011, so that's nine years. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> well, congratulations on nine years. Yeah, this year will look a little different. We don't have, usually we have, you know, six or seven things on the docket, and most of them in the fall, and we had three things in the fall that were just completely canceled, and one thing in the spring that's been canceled, and one thing that's pending in the spring, so it kind of right. depends on where the virus sits. Wait, I completely understand. <laughs> yeah. So ha- as a conductor, have you noticed, has, have, thing ch- have things changed for you as a female conductor since when you first started conducting? Yeah, um, actually, 
<clears throat> that brings me back to my dissertation. Um, I was working on my dissertation between, say, 2010 and 2013. And the topic was um, the changing color tone in professional choirs starting, like, you know, I don't know, over the past 40 or 45 years. And, uh, and this is like 2010 timeframe. Um, and I remember as I was getting towards the end of it, Libby Larson, she was one of the women that I interviewed. Nice. <laughs> and she came back to me and she said, she was so polite and so kind. She said, Kira, do you realize that you're really missing a huge component uh, of female conductors in the professional world? And I was like, she's right. And, you know, I had a few, I had a few female composers. And the whole premise was that it had to be a professional choir and it had to be, um, composers that were working with professional choirs. That was the whole premise. So I took a look back and they were really, really hard to find. I have found them since and I've now I have a list. I don't have it in front of me, <laughs> but I have a list of female conductors of professional choirs. And that's how it has been increasing exponentially since 2010. Have you, as a conductor, have you felt personally anything change for you in terms of con conducting or I think that if I were to leave Arizona and branch out a little bit farther than where I began, that probably would be true. But in Arizona, <clears throat> we only have three large universities here. We have some smaller community colleges and a couple smaller um, universities, small universities. So the opportunities for that growth um, haven't really presented themselves as much as I would hope. Um, but I've been knocking on many, many doors for the past 10 years. So I, I like to think that a few things have opened up that weren't open 10 years ago. <laughs> Do you have an example? Um, well, oh, here, here's one. So, Elise, um, we now, well, <laughs> in a non-COVID world, <laughs> we perform with the touring shows that come through town. So Final Fantasy. Oh, right. Yeah, that's wonderful. Zelda, mm -hmm. uh, Game of Thrones, that kind of stuff. And, you know a female conductor that tends to be in charge of it. I know that the, the, uh, when those tours also go to England, I've heard that a female conductor tends to be in charge of those choirs as well. So, you know, prior to me, I don't think that a female conductor was in charge of those kinds of touring shows in Phoenix. So that's one example. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting topic. For me, one thing that's unusual about my training is all of the significant teachers that I've had in music have all been women. Wow. So the, the piano teacher that was the most formative was, um, was a woman. The voice teacher who shaped me more than anyone else was a woman. Charlene Archibek is who I did my, my con conducting work. And um, when Charlene was sort of rising to, uh, to her stature, it was in this country, it was basically just her and Margaret Hillis with the Chicago Symphony I included her also in my dissertation, but of course she was dead by the time. By then, yeah. <laughs> so she became successful in this field when there were just it was just her and this other this other compatriot. So it's a I'm I'm a fascinated to see how the world has changed, um, and also how it hasn't. Uh, having conversations with conductors, I had a really surreal conversation with a conductor whose name I will not mention. Mm -hmm. at uh, the American Choral Directors Association. It was also a female, but she actually had an, a perception that she felt like women just could not be 
conductors that men were always going to be better. She was a complete disservice to her craft and her gender. And and yeah, it was right. I've seen those kinds of comments. In fact, I um, you know I went I went to Weber State University for my undergraduate, oh, okay. which is in Ogden, Utah. Mm-hmm. And I want to say six years ago, maybe they had me come in and do a presentation on women in my field. <laughs> and so I had to go and find all the research. And I found um, some research. I know uh, Kay Norton was part of this research in like the early 90s. Kay Norton is uh, now at Arizona State University mm-hmm. um, that talked about, I believe it was 14% or something like that of women conductors, uh, or it might have just been faculty at the university setting. And by that time, which was, I believe, right around 2014, um, and I'm tripping over myself because I haven't seen this research in six years, but it was either female. Uh, conductors, or it was female faculty, but I want to say it was conductors. We had only gone from like 13% to 17%. <laughs> so we had increased, we just hadn't increased exponentially. Not a lot. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting world. I haven't checked since then, though, I have to admit. <laughs> it's been focusing on being in the field and trying to contribute my contributions. <laughs> well, in regards to your contributions, um, we read somewhere that in addition to being and describing yourself as a composer or choral director and singer, you also describe yourself as a creative director. And so I'm curious as to what that means. Well, probably because um, I create all of Solis, you know, I, everything. <laughs> I do everything from the, the, um, the marketing to uh, all, all of the, well, I don't do the photography, but I check the photography and I end up working on all the posters. So everything sees my eye. Part of the, the reason that I do that is because we just simply don't have enough money to hire people to do all of that. And I have this really big problem of asking people to do things for free. And, and it's actually a problem because <laughs> I need to allow people to offer their services if they would like to, but I feel bad. You know, I hate, I hate asking people to do things for free. So um, I end up doing all of it, and um, it works, but it's a lot of work. So sometimes I suffer too much burnout, and I need to learn how to designate some responsibility. I understand that. As a, as a, a, a friendly bit of advice, you can always ask them to donate a gift in kind, because if it's an in-kind donation, they can write off the value of their work on their taxes. So it comes back to them in another format. So. It's not a loss for them in that regard. Just putting that out there. That's a really As, great. <laughs> every single nonprofit has to contend with this. So I, I totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the person that's in charge ends up doing far more than they probably should be doing. So I, sure. I guess that's what I mean by creative director because okay. I do everything from paying them, you know, because my, my choir is a professional choir who's paid. So everything from paying them to, you know, composing to choosing what our, um, programming is going to look like, et cetera. <laughs> How large is the group? It uh, depends on the gig because, um, you know, we're paid by whoever hires us. So we've been as small as four. That was for an ASU concert. Um, as, and as large as, let's see, when we did our, um, trying to think how many people we did for Game of Thrones, like 30. I think we've had maybe 36 as the biggest. That we yes. were all paid. Very nice. We've done some other gigs where we brought in other people that was up to 70, and those were not paid. <laughs> right. So given the pandemic and the current state of the world, um, 
how are things going with Solis? What what projects do you have coming up? I know you said several things in the fall have been have been put on hold and you've got a tentative thing in the spring. Everything has been put off till next year. So a possible concert in the spring and everything else will be next year. We have some things that I actually have non-disclosure agreements I'm not even supposed to talk oh, about. Yeah, I understand <laughs> that. Yeah, you have to wait. Yeah, um, which is kind of exciting. Um, and then uh, I have... For myself, I have some compositions that are kind of in the works at the moment. But um, yeah, it's it's a year of contemplation. It's a year of what do I want to do when I grow up? It's a year (laughs) (laughs) of, uh, you know, spending time with family and and hopefully getting to know friends a little bit better. You know, we may not be able to be with each other face to face, but we can chat and get on the phone and spend a little more time with that TLC. So uh, two more conducting questions. Um, One is, uh, I'm curious to know more about your 2009 performance at Lincoln Center. What can you tell me about that? Oh, that was fun. That's a long time ago. That was with the Phoenix Chorale. Okay, great. Um, Charles Bruffy was our conductor at that time. We were kind of riding a little bit of a high. We had just won our second Grammy for Spotless Rose. And... um, we joined with the Kansas City Chorale and sang in Lincoln Center. We also sang in Troy Savings Hall, which is just up the state in New York. That's a really cool place too, by the yeah. way. Um, and I was singing the Mantieri piece, um, Cala Tomatis Maratame. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm the widow of the captain who went down with the ship. And so I'm singing this rendition of Near My God to Thee across the ocean. So um, Charles tended to put me up in the balcony far, far away as people listened to me waft. <laughs> that must have been a thrill. It was pretty exciting. How wonderful. Yeah. It was um, also a little bit terrifying. Uh, I remember one time I was in Kansas City and I sang that song. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Kaufman Center. We yep. had um, <clears throat> ACDA a couple of years ago and he put me up at, uh, in the organ. And there's, I think the organists are probably used to this because it's just a little slim area where the organist sits. But for me, you know, it's this really, really high perch and you're looking down and it gives you a little bit of a, a dizzy kind of a feel. You know? <laughs> I'm always like, okay, just kind of hold on to something or, you know, ground yourself against the side of this so that you don't get that vertigo going. <laughs> yeah. Don't look down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've sang that song in how many cities? I don't know. Like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, maybe eight cities because we perform that piece a lot. It's a fantastic composition. Yeah, I love Mount <laughs> Yeah, what a thrill for you. That How wonderful. Yeah. So uh, n- last conducting question. Uh, the, the name of our podcast is No Baton Needed. So we ask our conductors thoughts about using the baton. Yes, no, when, why, love it, hate it. Any funny anecdotes you might have about using a baton? Okay, so... Um, my answer is going to be beyond just baton. Uh, I will get to baton or not, but um, the question that I constantly ask myself is, to conduct or not? Hmm. So at least um, 90, maybe 85% of the time we're unconducted. So I'm in charge, but I'm within, not in front. Part of it is that we're usually a pretty small group. You know, my favorite number to, to perform with is between 12 and 14. So 
how do you learn to perform together, listening, breathing, uh, feeling, emoting to the point where it's almost like you could, you can guess when your neighbor is going to take a breath. You know, even if they're not supposed to, you can guess it just, just by their, their body motions or their breathing. Um, to get that close with an ensemble that you almost don't even, my goal is always not to have to be in charge. I don't always succeed, but to not have to be the leader, but that we inclusively are leading together. That's a beautiful thing. And I'm sure that that was inspired by my time when I sang with Anuna. Michael McGlynn. That was sure. a big thing for him um, that, you know, to stand in front of a group, a group of only 12. Um, why would you need that? You know, there's only 12 of you. If you right. really sink your heart deep and, and really try to get into that core of the music, do you really need a conductor? So I think my influence came from there. Um, but <laughs> with large ensembles, conducting is necessary. <laughs> and I think, you know, I teach conducting or at least when I have a position at a university, that's what I tend to teach is a lot of conducting and music history courses. And I actually love teaching how to use the baton. It's very facile. It, it, there's a, <clears throat> you know, you can feel it in your blood and in your bones once you get used to how, it, how you use it and the response that it gives you directly that, that you may not feel directly with your hands. But with your hands, I feel like you can be so much more expressive. <laughs> uh, I, I, I do have a lot of friends on the baton side of things, on the instrumental side of things, I should say, that argue heavily against that, that they say, I can be just as expressive with my baton as you can be with your hands. Uh, but I also was with a conductor who was an assistant conductor at the Phoenix Symphony once who only used his hands and I could not follow him. Hmm. So I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I I I love it and I but I'm I'm not exclusively married to it. There have been seasons where I've I only conducted with a baton the entire season and there have been uh, I haven't used a baton recently except only when we're combined with an orchestra. But you know, Seiji Ozawa doesn't use um a baton at all. He just uses his hands, so it's Yeah. Um, I think it I think the music really dictates it. Some some and you know, it's when you're in the middle of rehearsal, sometimes you can feel like, I think this needs more clarity, or I think this feels too rigid. And so you move in one direction or another. Yeah. I, I love it for Baroque music, especially. The clarity that you can get with Baroque music in a baton is just, it's very satisfying. I so, and and always, within it, yeah. always with instrumentalists, I always use a baton if I have instrumentalists. But um, unless it's maybe just one, then it seems a little, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I I agree. So it's I I have one other choral question that I need to ask you because you you talked about Anuna. How how long did you sing with Anuna? Um, it's it it went in uh, you know just depending on what tours he needed you for. I think it started in two thousand eleven or two thousand twelve. I think it was eleven, uh, and went through two thousand fourteen for me. Uh, at that point, I got a job at university and I couldn't travel when Anuna tends to travel. They they do a lot of traveling in November and December um, and in the spring. And that's like right in the middle of a semester. Sure. For our listeners who don't know who Anuna is, um, you actually probably do know who they are and didn't realize it. They're the choir that was basically formed to do all of the choral vocal part of Riverdance, the show. 
the original group for them. And then they've just, because they were so popular, they just survived on, became their own entity. So yeah, they, well, he, he became an, <clears throat> he, I, I say that because Michael's really the driving vision behind Anuna. Um, it, it was really his vision of the group that turned it into an international sensation. You know, they had a little jump start with Riverdance, but right. um, he's an incredible creative, both visually in person as well as video or film. And and so he, <laughs> in some ways, he, he did all of these videos with choir far before we saw them with other choirs. And, you know, he used his native Ireland as a part to, to express the beauty of his music uh, and also some of the native melodies of Ireland. So... It, it's still a favorite of mine, even though I don't perform with them anymore. <laughs> we, the Choral Project, got to collaborate. Um, well, I got to collaborate with him and do one of his pieces with the Choral Project. But I, it was a setting of um, uh, an early hymn called Jerusalem that he had set for male voices. And we were adapting. I got his permission to adapt it for mixed voices. And there's some aleatory and there's... Um, cantorial like soloists and then the choir responds and he and I corresponded a lot about the style of this very particular kind of chant that you find in the Isles especially in Ireland that's totally different than any kind of the liturgical chant you hear anywhere else in the world where it's it's almost shrill and quite high um so he was he was a wonderful person to to correspond with he just made the process very easy and nothing felt overly possessive he just felt like he was just excited about having people do his stuff mm-hmm. yeah. yeah he's he's, he's very much he's very much about the artist being expressive you know like and and he, he's funny about facial expression though i will tell you because i was in the group so he doesn't want a lot of this he just wants it to be earnest and real <laughs> you know? so he spent a lot of time being earnest and real and genuine in concert so i, I think that i i probably have borrowed from some of those ideas because i found it uh so well genuine it, it, there wasn't any let me place a face on my face it didn't feel showy it, it felt honest yeah 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 i agree with that <laughs> let's move back to some questions around your your life as a composer um, how has being in lockdown affected your compositions and, and the ability to compose? I know we talked a little bit about um, there aren't groups performing, so but if you could just tell us a little bit more about that. In the beginning, um, I think along with the rest of the world, I was very hopeful that things would uh, pass quickly. <laughs> you know that we would have a you know a few months of a difficult time, and I knew that a lot of people would pass away, and that was that was hurting me deeply to know that a lot of people were hurting that hard and still are. Um, and so I composed like three or four songs in, in the space of about two months because all I had was quarantine. You know, um, my kids, we weren't really allowed to go out. My kids were home from school. My husband was working at home and I could just close my door and off I went. And then later on, end of May, Black Lives Matter, a lot of other things were happening. There was some ugliness inside our own choral community, which struck me pretty hard, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I needed to walk away for a while. I had to go do some soul searching, uh, go find my space. Um, we always go to Utah in the summer, so we were able to find a way to quarantine in Utah. And the nice thing about Utah is, A, it's cooler than Arizona. <laughs> And B, there's lots of mountains, which is a huge source of inspiration for me. And it's a huge place of um, renewal and healing and re- and regrowth. 
So I spent a lot of time outdoors, just absorbing nature, meditating, um, thinking about these kinds of things. Who am I? What do I want to be? What kind of music do I want to compose? And for a while there, I, I really literally needed to kind of shove it in a closet because it, it hurt, you know, because mm -hmm. music, it can hurt, you know, it can be really painful to, to go through and express the kinds of words and the kinds of notes that are reflective of our world today. <clears throat> and then I came back in August and I was still feeling it. And that's when I started with the, 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 the darkness and the headphones and just going into myself and into the emotions. And I was actually kind of surprised at what came out. Cause again, it's like, well, what is my music? <laughs> is this me or is this, you know, inspiration that comes in and does it for me? I, you know, I could, I can't tell the difference because it's just allowing the, the flow to pour forth. I, I and I don't think you have to tell a difference. I just think it it just is, and yeah. I it, I've told other composers that we've interviewed that this has been an oddly prolific time for me, where just the ideas are really popping in my head. It'll I have a lot of insomnia, so sometimes when I'm just staring at the ceiling, suddenly an idea just pops, and I have to get the laptop open, and then I start just writing. And I've written a lot in the last several months, and and it, it's always, it's a little surreal too, because usually when I'm writing, and you will understand this, usually you know I'm writing this and this will be done at this time. So I'm writing a lot of things that may just go in a drawer that, you know. Right. But, but, the, but the process itself of writing it, I'm finding to be very cathartic and a wonderful way to navigate very bizarre, strange, surreal waters in our world. Yeah. And I've needed that as well. And, and I have a similar experience where I just, I have like four or five songs that are just started <laughs> and I have them documented. I could put them into sheet music and, you know, all of that, but they're just, they're just sitting there and they're, they're kind of like, you know, introspective moments of 2020 from the right. mind of a composer, you know, they're, I have to say that for me, they've been very somber this year. They're, they're not bright. They're not happy. There isn't a whole lot to feel bright and happy about at this very moment in time. Although hope is always a part of my compositions. Even the mm -hmm. one that I composed for your group, which was, by the way, one of the ones that I couldn't help but compose in March right. and April. <laughs> and it's lovely. We can't wait to do it. Thank you. It's, it's all based on hope. Um, you know, it, it reflects upon, and, you know, like, at the, like I said, at that time, it was all about, you know, all these people that were dying and we didn't know how to help them. And even if they made it to the hospital, we didn't know if they were going to make it out of the hospital. Um, and so uh, in my composition, I use water glasses and the water glasses represent these souls that don't make it, you know. And so at the end, they just kind of are floating away. And so, but at the same time, floating away with the people behind observing them and thinking we're going to miss you but we're still going to do our work you know so it's it, there's an element of hope but also an element of reality mm -hmm. so yeah 2020 has influenced all of us <laughs> it, the world will never be the same I, uh, on the on the positive side of this um is there i mean generally speaking and of course this question may be a strange question to ask during this pandemic time, but um, in general, about composing, what is it that you enjoy the most? Gosh, <clears throat> that is a tough question, isn't it? I think I would have to say that it is the process 
And then coming to the end of that process and looking at what you created and being satisfied with it. There's been plenty of compositions that I've composed where I'm like, mm, that one's not going to see the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. That was a practice. You know? <laughs> um, but, but if you get to that point where you really feel like that's a winner, um, that's really satisfying. And I also have to say that it's one of the things that's the most hard about being a composer is that you know, you know, it's a good piece and it should be shared with the world. Yet getting it to be shared with the world, that's, that's a whole different step. Will people believe you? Will people care? There's so many other voices out there that are all stretching and trying to make their way and you're just one of them. <laughs> And yet you care so intimately about these pieces, you know, and it's almost, it's scary to put them out into that big bad world because then the criticism comes and the people, well, it's derivative of this or it's crappy or it's, you know, whatever, you know, everybody has their opinion, but yet to the composer, it means a lot. <laughs> right. Do you have a, a, a checklist that you adhere to when composing? Is there a specific aspect to your process um, or is there a moment that fuels your creativity when you're preparing to craft a piece. A lot of different sources of sources of inspiration. Sometimes I'll collect <clears throat> harmonic progressions that I love, and I'll just collect them in a little pile in this, you know, like random file that I have of harmonic progressions that I love, and then I'll go steal them if they work for something. Sometimes I'll I'll just you know a, a random melody will pop in my head. Sometimes I will be um, watching a television show. And I'll hear something from a television show that I'm like, that's really cool. How can I turn something like that into a choral piece? Um, that's, that's happened on more than one occasion. Uh, I'm very inspire inspired by film music. So and in fact, my son, he, he has a beautiful voice. He won't join choir because <laughs> choirs don't uh, sing film music because let's face it, most film music is instrumentally based. And so, um, some of the things that I've been thinking about recently, and I have composed one and it will be on a Solis album someday, but I'm not going to tell you what, because it's still under wraps, <clears throat> but um, taking film music and composing it for voice, uh, no words, just an instrumentally conceived piece that is from film music. So. And is, is there a specific aspect to your, your process in addition to, I mean, I know you've, you, 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 collect things you have favorites but are there things you adhere to when you compose do you find that there are things that always happen hmm. <clears throat> i'd have to say no and the reason why is um i began as a composer that took the the art seriously excuse me to actually share it with the world um kind of late you know i was 35 i think when I was really like, you know, I think I'm going to compose for the sake of composition, not just for the sake of arranging for my choir for next Sunday. Um, <clears throat> so for each composition that I have done over the past several years since that time, um, I've actually actively been trying to sound different on each composition. <laughs> I didn't want to sound the same. I didn't right. want to become derivative of myself. I didn't want to sound like Eric Whitaker or Ola Yalo or Fare, I, I wanted to, you know, keep trying and keep opening myself to different techniques so that I could eventually come into something that really wasn't somebody else's voice, but was my own. 
So not yet. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say that one of the things, you know, just from a technical aspect, I don't like repeats. You know, I don't like to do things exactly the same thing twice. Mm. Kind of irritates me. Um, I also tend to think fairly complex. <laughs> and especially my early compositions were extremely complex. Um, and so I've actually been trying to pare it down to be more simple so that it's um, more easily marketable and more easily digestible by the average choir so that my voice can get out there. So those are some of the things I've been actively thinking on. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. It, it's funny that you say that what you talked about, about not repeating and then about looking for just sort of simplicity and clarity because it brings to mind two different things for me. One is I, I actually also don't like just slapping repeat signs around something that as much as I love Tchaikovsky, like in his, his B flat, you know, his, his first piano concerto in the last movement, he has this, these eight bar phrases where he literally just puts repeat signs and the accompaniment figures in the orchestra. And instead of not writing repeat signs, if he had just repeated the eight bars, but passed the accompaniment figure to different instruments in the orchestra, it would have been a little more interesting. Um, but it, it always used to bug me growing up. I'm like, why? It just feels kind of cheap <laughs> to just put repeat the. And it's one of the things that I love about Brahms. I mean, it's a big part of his philosophy as a composer that everything is ever evolving and it can never be the same because even the time that it, it, in which it exists is now different than it was just five seconds ago. Yeah. So I, I, I subscribe to that philosophy completely. And then the clarity thing, it's. That was one of the things about Copland when they asked him to, if he could describe his music. And he said he just always tries to go for the very simple, clear, clean type of writing. Um, and that's what gave him this almost, I mean, he's been nicknamed the populist you know, the com of composers, the sort of people's composer, that it had this universal appeal even though he was doing nothing to dumb down the art in and of itself. And, and the sound is unmistakably Copland. When you hear it, it's either somebody copying him or it's him. Right. So it's, it's interesting that when you're, I'm only bringing it up because I think that, you know, to an average listener, they may think that simplifying means to dumb it down, but it doesn't mean that at all. It just, it just accessibility isn't the same thing. Right. Um, so I have found it, much harder to write simply than I did to write in complex ways. And so it was actually a challenge for me to bring it from this crazy, you know, 12 part something, something, something all the way down to, no, we can do this in four part harmony with a little bit of Debussy. Um, and, and, and if you think about it, you know, some of our favorite, favorite, favorite compositions in the choral world, uh, choral world are some of the most simple pieces. You know, they're just absolutely adoring and loving and people want to sing them over and over again. Uh, and, and, you know, that brings me back to why am I composing? Why am I putting my voice out there? Um, at the end of the day, it's because I want people to feel something. I want them to heal. I want them to feel joy. I want them to feel love. I want them to feel transcendence. I want them to feel and not just have to go through life, you know, with the dull drums of here's every day, 
you know, not that this year has been the doldrums of here, here's every day. We've had quite a bit of things happen, but you know, to, to be able to express yourself and then for other, for someone else to heal from that, that, that is my goal as a composer. That's the most noble thing that you can do. <laughs> we all try, right? Yeah, indeed. All right. Do you have an Achilles heel when it comes to composing? Are there things that pitfalls say, oh, I did it again? Yeah. Yeah. A couple times, some harmonies that I tend to love and then use a lot and then have to go back and say, you know, maybe this is a little bit, you know, cliche, <laughs> you know, so a few suspensions along the way that I'm like, oh, I love it. And it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> you got to use those in choice moments to ha add a little bit of sour rather than keep the whole thing sour the whole way. <laughs> so if you had to choose one work you've composed to listen to as the only piece of music for the rest of your life, I feel like you're on a desert island and this is it. What would it be and why? Okay. Give me a moment to pause. Okay. Earth Teach Me. I composed it for the Flagstaff Chorale or the Master Chorale Flagstaff. Um, Tom Peterson was their conductor at that time. It was strings and piano and choir. Um, and a poet by the name of Nancy Wood, who died, I want to say maybe 2004, 2005. Um, and she's from Santa Fe. And she was um, very much a part of the earth. And, and, and all of her poetry um, came from her inspiration of what she felt in nature, uh, being close to the earth and also being. Um, very sensitive to Native American culture and Native American experiences. Uh, and so Earth Teach Me is a combination of her own poetry, reflective of Nati Native American ways of addressing uh, nature. And I'm from Utah, and the mountains and water and lakes and streams and rain and the smell and trees, 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 trees. I live in Arizona. You can tell I miss trees. Mm -hmm. This means so much to me. So it was a true honor to compose something that was about the earth. Um, so it's called Earth Teach Me. And it was thorough composed, so I didn't actually keep within a form. Uh, but I kept, um, similar to how filmmakers would do, um, film composers, I had themes that would run throughout and each of those themes would then twist and turn and be in different voices at different times and in different ways um, to express this text, I would have to say. And, you know, it's only had one uh, performance. It needs 500 performances. It's one of uh, what I would consider my gems, but it's, it's one of my very favorite. Is, is it just for choir or is, it, is there an instrumentation? Choir, string orchestra, and piano. Uh, string well. orchestra of 12 that sounds right up my alley. I should totally take a look at that. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of my very favorites. And actually, the other new one of my favorites is The Eternal Spark, which is the one that I composed for you. Yes, which we're looking forward to. All right. We, we often will end our podcast with kind of a quick fire um, series of questions. So uh, here we go. Waffles or pancakes? Waffles. Beer or wine? Wine. Favorite instrument? French horn or harp. Okay. Day or night? Night. Window seat or aisle? Hmm. It used to be window. These days it's aisle. 
Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. And donut or croissant? Croissant. Bien sûr. <laughs> lovely, lovely, lovely. You made me hungry. Okay. Well, Kira, it has been wonderful to pick your brain, catch up with you, learn more about your inspirations and your motivations artistically. And it's made me all the more excited to dig into the music that you've written for us. And um, thank you for taking the time to, to share your spirit with us. Thank you for taking the time to keep all of this art alive during this time of quarantine and craziness. I really appreciate it. Oh, it, 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 it takes us all to, you know, remind people, hey, it's still going. Yeah. <laughs> it just looks a little different. But yes. Well, thank you again. And uh, we look forward to coming up for water. You're very welcome. Right. Thank you. Take Thanks. care. Bye bon bye. voyage. Bon voyage. <laughs> when we're able to again. <laughs> yes, indeed. Bye. Thank you for listening to the No Baton Needed podcast. Be sure to follow The Coral Project on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and SoundCloud. And of course, subscribe to the No Baton Needed podcast wherever and however you stream us. See you next month when we bring you the final episode of Season 1. Wear your masks and stay safe. Thank you.